Today's show is brought to you by SouthernAccentRestaurant.com. Use their online shop to create a Cajun and Creole dinner at home with custom sauces, filet powders, and voodoo paste. Don't feel like cooking? Order a prefix meal for pickup. Welcome to episode number four of Last Call with Richard Krauss, the podcast dedicated to remembering the tales and cocktails from my favorite bars and restaurants. I spent 17 years slinging drinks, and now I'm slinging stories. Imagine a bar with an indoor lagoon. Now imagine that it rains indoors every half hour. It's not just a flight of fancy, it's the Tonga Room, a classic restaurant and tiki bar in the Fairmont San Francisco Hotel. Named after the South Pacific nation of Tonga, it is an eye-popping example of high-style tiki that's been igniting the imaginations of customers for more than 75 years. Today, I'll tell you about the history of a place that offers up a tropical vacation for the price of a cocktail. Before we get to that, let's begin with my conversation with Jeff Beachbum Berry. He's one of Imbibe Magazine's 25 most influential cocktail personalities of the past century. He's an author of many books on tiki and cocktail culture, including the best-selling Sippin' Safari and Potions of the Caribbean. He's also known as the Sage of Rum, the man with the keys to the tropical kingdom, and the Indiana Jones of Tiki. I'll play the whole interview a little bit later on, but here's a taste of Jeff talking about how a restaurateur named Don the Beachcomber invented what we now think of as tiki drinks. What we call tiki drinks today, by the way, that's a 21st century term. They were never called that right. in the uh, during the actual golden age of Polynesian places. They were called either tropical drinks or exotic drinks. Um, Tiki drinks was like cocktail bloggers in the 21st century needed a category, so they came up with that. um, But anyway, um, Tiki drinks, for want of a better word, Mm -hmm. are basically Caribbean drinks, um, cubed and squared and cubed by Don's uh, innovation. The holy trinity of Caribbean mixology is rum, lime, and sugar. Planter's punch, Jamaican rum, lime, and sugar. Daiquiri, Cuban rum, lime, and sugar. Uh, Tea punch, Martinique, agricole rum, lime, and sugar, you know, and so on and so on and so on. And Don took that foundation and he dimensionalized it. Like uh, instead of uh, sugar, well, why don't we mix two or three different sweet elements together? What about mixing a cinnamon syrup? Uh, Does that mix with pomegranate? Uh, Yeah, it kind of does. What if we take another syrup? An already compound syrup like falernum, which is ginger, clove, put those together. Okay, that gives you um, a very interesting sweet component to the drink. Sour, why just lime juice? What if we add another citrus? What if does grapefruit and lime do something interesting together? You know, uh, rum, and this is where we get to what you were asking. As you said, most people think of rum as just you know Bacardi. Okay, mm-hmm. it's just it's, it's, that's, that's what it is. Rum is the most damnably complicated spirit category it is. You would never think of putting, for example, three different bourbons in an old fashioned, um, because although there are differences between brands in proof and in aging and, and you know certain flavor differences, blind tasting of five different bourbons from different distilleries, they're gonna taste like bourbon. Same thing with London gin, same thing with Mexican tequila, but rum, is not like that at all. The only thing you compare rum to is wine. Take a, take that white Puerto Rican rum that the party rum and, and the, on one side, and then take uh, a dark Jamaican rum, like this black Jamaican rum, like uh, uh, Myers or Appleton. It's like comparing Chablis and Pinot Noir. 
We'll be back with lots more from Jeff Beachbum Barry at the after party, right after I tell you the story of the invention of tiki, the California gold rush, and the legendary Tonga Room. It's a bar that no less an authority than Anthony Bourdain called the greatest place in the history of the world. But first, some background. The best tiki bars sweep their customers away from the stresses of everyday life. They're a Polynesian escape hatch into a relaxing world where the drinks are boozy and reminders of your last beachy vacation hang on the walls. Many even black out their windows to keep the big bad world at bay. So it makes sense the tiki aesthetic came into being in the years just after Prohibition and at the tail end of the Great Depression. The original tiki paradise was called Don's Beachcomber. In Hollywood, California, it was run by a flamboyant bartender with an even more flamboyant name, Ernest Raymond Beaumont Gant. Gant settled in Los Angeles after an itinerant young life spent traveling the globe. In 1929, he hopped a freighter and spent a year or two exploring the South Pacific. In 1933, he opened a 25-seat bar in Hollywood called Don's Beachcomber to capitalize on the 1930s fascination with the South Pacific. From a world that is overburdened with the sterner realities of life, we seek respite in the romantic isles of the South Sea, where life is not so complicated and joy is unrestrained. The tropical decor came courtesy of the Hollywood sets he helped build and bamboo and bits of flotsam and jetsam he found washed up on the beach during his South Sea adventures. To complete the tropical illusion, he even had the sound of rain falling on the roof piped in and he shared lays with his customers. If you can't get to paradise, he said, I'll bring it to you. On the drink list, which eventually swelled to 60 cocktails, were Rum Rhapsody's faux Polynesian-inspired cocktails made with local produce and unusual ingredients like falernum, a cordial made from an infusion of citrus, spices, nuts, and sugar. Don's Beachcomber offered an exotic getaway without leaving town. But really, let's be fair, it was rum that was crucial to Don's success. Not only was he a wizard at creating rum cocktails, but high-octane rum was also easy to lay your hands on post-prohibition. Distillers were not yet operational in the U.S., and Cuba was not only close by, but willing to sell cheap rum to the United States. The entrance to the famous Bacardi distillery, where the famous rum Bacardi is so artfully brewed. Large stores of the amber fluid are in readiness for repeal. Trucks are all loaded and ready to rush to the first steamer bound for the United States just as soon as the gong rings. The place caught on. Gant changed his name to Don with two N's, Beach, Don Beach, which according to a former Los Angeles councilman was less an act of showmanship and more an effort to distance himself from past bootlegging and a previous gig as the operator of a booze can called Ernie's Place. But whatever the reason for the name change, his bar was a hit, and in 1937, he moved across the street, added a restaurant, and changed the name to Don the Beachcomber. The place became a huge hit with Hollywood types like Marlena Dietrich, Bing Crosby, Clark Gable, and Vivian Lee. They all came for the atmosphere and left with monogrammed bamboo chopstick cases that were made specially for them. The stars also enjoyed Don's creation. Boozy rum drinks like the Zombie, a cocktail so potent that drinking two of them was the equivalent of consuming seven regular cocktails. This isn't going to end well. 
or a Cobra's Fang, a Tahitian Rum Punch, Three Dots and a Dash or Navy Grog, all drinks created by Don and all drinks that still decorate bar menus to this day. With success, imitators soon came sniffing around. Victor Bergeron, later known as Trader Vic, admits he was a Don the Beachcomber fan but says, I felt I could do it better. In 1937, he tried to do just that, transforming his Oakland bar, Hinky Dinks, into the tropical Trader Vic's. The name came from his habit of trading drinks and food for the exotic decorations brought in by customers. Unlike Don, Trader Vic was not a South Sea traveler. On his only trip to the South Pacific, he got so seasick he vowed never to return. But like Don, he was a genius at creating mythology. As a child, he lost his leg due to tuberculosis, but instead of telling the sad, true story, he told people that a shark bit it off, and then he'd plunge a knife into his wooden leg to punctuate the story. Also, like Don, Trader Vic was a genius at creating cocktails. He claims credit for the Fog Cutter, a mix of rum, gin, brandy, and the El Diablo, a refreshing concoction of tequila, lime, and creme de cassis. He adopted the Scorpion Bowl, a mind-bending, shareable cocktail made with 15 different ingredients, including a bottle and a half of rum, gin, brandy, and if that wasn't enough, a half bottle of wine to top it all off. He got that from a place in Hawaii. Tamer versions of that drink still dot tiki menus today. His most famous drink came with a bit of controversy. Trader Vic took credit for one of the cornerstones of tiki bar culture, the iconic Mai Tai. I say it came with a side of controversy because Don Beach claimed the blend of rum, curacao liqueur, orja syrup, and lime juice was inspired by his own punch, the QB Cooler, which he invented in 1933. The Mai Tai is one of the quintessential tiki culture cocktails so popular it allegedly depleted world rum supplies in the 1940s and 50s. According to the Trader Vic's legend, in 1944, Oakland, California, Vic poured 17-year-old Jamaican rum, added a squeeze of lime, and a dash of rock candy syrup, a little splash of orange curacao, and French orgia over ice. A friend visiting from Tahiti took a sip and in Tahitian said, Mai Tai Roa Ai, out of this world, the best. Vic translated it and named the drink Mai Tai Tahitian for the best. His Paradise in a Glass was a sensation and later was featured in the 1961 Elvis Presley film Blue Hawaii and would eventually become the official cocktail of Richard Nixon's presidency. Well, I'm not a crook. As recently as 2008, the bar at the Merchant Hotel in Belfast, Northern Ireland, won a Guinness World Record for selling the most expensive Mai Tai cocktail. $1,475 for a Trader Vic's Mai Tai featuring the original 17-year-old Ray and Nephew Rum. Between them, Trader Vic and Don Beach inspired thousands of other tiki and exotica-themed bars and restaurants, including one in the basement of the beautiful Fairmount Hotel in San Francisco. I'm Richard Krebs. This is Last Call, but we're just getting started with our story about tiki bars and the Tonga Room. So stick around. The Fairmont San Francisco is a legendary hotel. Located at 950 Mason Street, high atop Knob Hill, it's the crown jewel of one of the most desirable and expensive real estate markets in the United States. Since 2002, it's been on the National Register of Historic Places, noted as the location of the first United Nations Conference and the first American hotel to have a concierge. 
Gossip has it that when Jackie Kennedy showed up unexpectedly to visit her husband, President John F. Kennedy, she missed Marilyn Monroe by seconds. How did that happen? Well, allegedly, the movie star escaped through a secret passageway hidden by a sliding bookcase in the hotel's penthouse. Joni Mitchell sang about staying there in the song Real Good for Free on the album Miles of Isles, and inside, in the Venetian room, Tony Bennett sang his signature song, I Left My Heart in San Francisco for the first time in December 1961. It's been featured in many films, including The Rock, do you remember the scene where Sean Connery tosses FBI Director Womack off the balcony? Drop the gun, or I drop your boss. Well, that was the Fairmont, and it freaked out several real guests who weren't aware a movie was being shot on the premises. The Bachelor has shot there, as have many other television shows, but its real-life history is as dramatic as any Hollywood film. It's got it all. Wealth, politics, sex, disaster, and much more. California. The story begins with the California Gold Rush. In the mid-1800s, Irish immigrant James Graham Fair, along with about 300,000 others from all over the U.S. and abroad, in what was called the most astonishing mass movement of peoples since the Crusades, traveled to the American West looking for gold in them thar hills. But I'm off for California, that's the place for me, for there's gold in them thar hills, there's gold in them thar hills. I'm off to California for this gold in them nar hills. Fair eventually found a fortune, not in gold and not in California, but in the silver mines of Nevada. He discovered the Comstock Lode near Virginia City, Nevada. The strike was so rich that in the 1860s, the Comstock Lode earned $400 million and in one year made as much as 5% of all the wealth created by millions of Americans. As one of the newly crowned Silver Kings, he was nicknamed Bonanza Jim and became one of San Francisco's wealthiest citizens. He built railroads, was elected by the Nevada legislature to the U.S. Senate in 1881, and that's where he fought for silver when there was a movement to demonetize the precious metal that had made him his fortune. He moved back to San Francisco in 1887 and bought the land at the top of Knob Hill, the territory of railroad tycoons and the city's elite was nicknamed Snob Hill. His idea was to build the largest home in a neighborhood filled with palatial estates, but before he could break ground on his mansion, he was divorced by his wife Teresa, the mother of his four kids, for habitual adultery. He died in 1894, leaving behind a bevy of women who claimed intimate relationships with him, but no grand house on the hill. In his will, he left $40 million to his children. His daughters, Tessie Fair Ulrich and Virginia Fair Vanderbilt, took over the land and planned a luxurious monument to their father's memory. They commissioned the architectural and engineering firm of Reed & Reed to design a 600-room, seven-story hotel in the Italian Renaissance style, built from gray granite, cream marble, and terracotta stone. They imagined the hotel would be a home away from home for travelers and a luxurious spot for glittering balls, presidential visits, and political gatherings. 
A few years after construction began in 1902, the sisters traded the structure for two apartment buildings, but not before they used the family name Fair and the hotel's location on top of a hill, Mont, to create the now famous Fairmount Hotel moniker. If the planned opening date, April 18, 1906, sounds familiar, it's not because the new owners threw open the doors to great acclaim. You know the date because at 5.12 a.m. that morning, a massive 7.9 earthquake rocked San Francisco, killing more than 3,000 people and destroying over 80% of the city. The earth shook from Eureka on the north coast to the Salinas Valley, an agricultural region to the south of the San Francisco Bay Area. It's an The devastating quake leveled much of the city, but the stately hotel survived the initial disaster. City officials commandeered the hotel as a temporary command post until 24 hours later when out-of-control fires, which were just as destructive as the quake, warped the hotel's heavy steel frame and destroyed the interior. A major restoration effort went into rebuilding the gutted hotel. Owners Herbert and Hartland Law originally hired prominent architect Stanford White to oversee the project, but White was involved in a love triangle and was shot and killed by multi-millionaire Harry Thaw. The world was shocked breathless when America's richest playboy, Harry K. Thaw, walked to the table of Stanford White, America's most renowned architect, and shot him dead with a solid gold revolver. lays bare the most scandalous true-life love drama of the century, a story unique in the annals of crime and passion. Now you see, I told you this was a dramatic story. Next, they hired a local architect named Julia Morgan, California's first female licensed architect. She had a flair for the grandiose and later went on to design the Hearst Castle on California's central coast. She brought the hotel back to its former glory, and one year later, on April 18, 1907, the Fairmount became the city's first major business to open following the quake. The opening party celebrated the rebirth of the hotel and the city with gallons of champagne, 13,000 oysters, and fireworks. As the city slowly came back to life with construction projects, the Fairmount San Francisco became known as a hotel so grand they build a city around it. But what does all this have to do with tiki bars? Well, this is the part of the story where we thread the needle and weave together the California Gold Rush, a grand hotel, Trader Vic, and Don the Beachcomber. Hidden inside the stately Beaux Arts exterior of the Fairmont San Francisco is an elaborate tiki bar that opened during a wave of California South Sea fever. The origins of the Tonga Room date back to 1929. That was the year the hotel added a 75-foot indoor swimming and diving pool on its terrace level called the Fairmont Plunge. It was the only major hotel swimming pool in San Francisco. The elaborate tile pool had glass doors that looked outside and that gave the room an airy, pleasant feel. And boy, did it ever catch on. For much of the next 15 years, national diving champions and several Olympic medalists trained there alongside Hollywood stars like Helen Hayes and Ronald Reagan, but the depression took its toll on the hotel and by the early 1940s, it had entered a period of what was called benign neglect. 
A new owner named Benjamin Swig initiated a facelift, redoing the lobby and the public areas, and soon the Fairmont became popular again with the high-end clientele who had sustained it for decades. By 1945, however, the Fairmont plunge wasn't doing very well. The glamour that once surrounded the pool area, sightings of movie stars and famous athletes, that was long gone, so the decision was made to transform the plunge into something sexier, something that would draw crowds and make money. To that end, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer's leading set director, Mel Melvin, was hired to gussy up the room. He took inspiration from the South Sea fad that was sweeping the nation. Somewhat off the beaten track of oceanic travel lies the charming little island of Rarotonga, where the rugged grandeur of its mountain peaks and the variety and luxuriance of its vegetation combine to present one of the most picturesque scenes in all of the South Sea. And just one year after Trader Vic claimed to pour the first Mai Tai in the world ever in nearby Oakland, California, the Tonga Room was born. Melvin went all out. Hoping to maintain the room's existing nautical ambiance, he salvaged the SS Forester, a lumber schooner that once ran between San Francisco and the South Sea Islands from dry dock in Martinez, California. To transform the former pool room into a restaurant and bar that simulated a pool deck on a luxury cruise ship, he repurposed the Forester's deck to become a dance floor, and lifeboats, metal air vents, and life preservers decorated the space. It was like taking a vacation without ever leaving town. It was the transformation of the former plunge pool, though, that really made the Tonga Room special. As guests ate Chinese food and sipped big boozy drinks, an orchestra floated on a boat in the refurbished pool, now decorated to look like a lagoon. With none of the kitsch sometimes associated with the Americanized Polynesian aesthetic, the Tonga Room was an elegant South Sea paradise in the basement of a very fancy hotel. But even so, sometimes the zombies and Mai Tais got the best of the clientele. San Francisco Chronicle columnist Herb Cahan wrote in 1946, Well, it finally happened. A couple of spiffigated gents stripped down to their shorts at the Fairmont Tonga room the other night and leaped into the swimming pool. Decades later, the lagoon is still a magnet for customers. Selfie takers have been known to take an accidental plunge while struggling to get the perfect shot. One night, a woman rejected her boyfriend's marriage proposal by throwing the ring into the lagoon. And it wasn't the first time that had happened. When rings end up in the pool, the staff use diving gear to locate the errant jewelry. It's not uncommon for cocktail umbrellas or tiki mugs to end up in the lagoon either. But on one out-of-control night, 12 people jumped in all at once. That kind of behavior is, of course, discouraged. So much so, a few years ago, they started fining anyone who took an unauthorized dip in the lagoon $500. So far, they've collected thousands of dollars from dripping wet customers. And now out of the lagoon and back to dry land for the rest of our story. The Tonga Room was an instant success and over the years has seen a variety of renovations. In 1953, they added indoor thunderstorms with flashing lights and thunder that rumble every 30 minutes. It's quite a show and one of the reasons that the late, great Anthony Bourdain called the Tonga Room the greatest place in the history of the world. 
1967, architect Howard Hirsch overhauled the place one more time, bringing in the Polynesian pop high tiki aesthetic that stands mostly untouched to this day. He embellished the luxury liner look with lava rock walls, miles of bamboo, seashells, thatched huts, tiki figurines, and ship's masts. It's a look that has come to define classic tiki bar decor, and the look and the place are very popular. The Tonga Room has outlasted nearly all of its contemporaries, even though the columnist Kayan wrote in 1989 that the Tonga Room wasn't likely to get redeveloped or closed down. The Tonga Room is safe, he wrote, except for the drunks who fall in the pool. It did come close to closing in 2010, but was saved thanks to protests, a Save Tonga Facebook site, letters and signed petitions. And so, they're still open, serving up zombies and the scorpion, a rum cocktail so potent it comes with a warning. Beware, one too many may sting. These days, if you're planning a trip to the Conga Room, plan to get there early because it gets really busy. We usually try and get there just as the doors are opening. There's probably a bit of a line that you'll have to deal with, but it's not as nuts as it'll get later on in the night. The first time we walked through those doors into the bar was kind of overwhelming. The place made our eyeballs dance. It's huge, way bigger than the pictures would make you believe it is. And the tiki decor, let's face it, it's not subtle, but that's the charm of the place. This isn't like a rainforest cafe. I don't even know if they have those anymore. This is a slice of history with tiki decor on a scale like I've never, ever seen anywhere else. There just aren't that many places from Tiki's mid-century golden era left. So for me, it's more than just a theme bar. It is this really singular experience. And the sheer scale and ridiculousness of it all but guarantee that, well, you know, we're going to have a good time. And every time we've been, we always have. To paraphrase Anthony Bourdain, if you have no love in your heart for this place, you are sick, twisted, and lonely with too many cats. Now, I like cats, but I also love the Tonga Room because it really is a trip. To be honest, I haven't really tried much of the food, although I hear they have their fish flown in directly from Hawaii, so that's good. I have snacked on the chicken satay, and I'm told the fennel-crusted butterfish with roasted ginger is also delicious. But I've always gone there for something more basic, and that's the big, boozy cocktails like the Mai Tai, Fog Cutter, and Zombie. Next to the decor, they are the Tonga Room's calling card. Ever see a Polynesian pearl diver before? Not served as a drink. <laughs> These aren't really drinks. They're trade winds across cool lagoons. They're the Southern Cross above coral reefs. They're a lovely maiden bathing at the foot of a waterfall. Oh, that's pretty. Doesn't make much sense, but it's pretty. Did you make it up? Oh, I memorized it. The tiki drink menu is divided into several sections. There's classic tiki, like the 1944 Mai Tai made from Trader Vic's recipe, uh, the Jet Pilot, a drink with three, kind of three rums that was created at a place called Lao Restaurant in 1958. There's a fog cutter created by bartender Tony Ramos at Hollywood's Dawn the Beachcomber, and that's a mix of Nicaraguan rum, cognac, and gin that has left me in a fog more than once the next morning. Then there's the Godfather, the 1934 zombie made from the original Don the Beachcomber's recipe. 
The next section is Modern Tiki, and it features drinks like Tonga's Planter's Punch, which they call a murderous improvement on the island's one-two punch, and the Adult Swim, which refers back to the lagoon that I told you about and people's habit of jumping into it. Uh, they list that one on the menu as more refreshing than a dip in our pool. The drinks tend to be kind of sweet, but you can ask the bartender to make them less sweet if you like. They're accommodating that way. The only thing that doesn't change is the absolutely potent amount of rum that's in every cocktail. Condé Nast called the Tonga Room one of America's quintessential drinking experiences. And I have to say, I agree. There's a ton of tiki bars out there, uh, a lot of which have really elaborate decorations, but nothing comes even close that I've seen anyway to matching the sheer over-the-top splendiferousness of the Tonga Room. At the Tonga Room, the rum continues to pour by the gallon. The odd customer will still risk the $500 fine to take a dip in the lagoon, and it still rains indoors every half hour. It's an immersive experience that goes beyond food and drink, although both are great. It's the chance to step back in time, to step out of a modern city and into a tropical paradise. It is, as one longtime employee said, a place where adults act like kids. That was Last Call, a history of the Tonga Room, but you don't have to leave just yet. Stick around. It's time for the after party. That's where we get to spend a bit more time with Jeff Beachbum Berry, author, cocktail king, and the Indiana Jones of Tiki, who joined me via Zoom from Louisiana. What was it about Tiki cocktails that first really captured your imagination? I know you grew up in Los Angeles. It's kind of ground zero. Was, was that it? Yeah, well, it all started back when uh, snakes walked and dinosaurs still ruled the earth. Um, I'm talking about like 1964, five, I was six, seven years old. And my, I was living in Los Angeles County, San Fernando Valley, like right over the hill from Hollywood. Yep. And, um, and my parents wanted Chinese food. And we went to a Chinese restaurant called Ah Fong's. Uh, and little did I know that oh, like a month before it had been uh, the Bora Bora Room. And uh, they, they spent so much money on decor that they, they, they could not recoup their costs and they went out of business. And Alfong's just kind of hermit crabbed in there and served their Cantonese food and, and all. So uh, in order to get to the dining room, you had to be taken through the bar. And I was walking through the bar as like a six-year-old kid. And it was just astounding. It was like a, a Technicolor movie set of South Seas Paradise. <laughs> they spared no, I mean, it's no wonder they went broke. You know, it was just like... Uh, there was a, an outrigger canoe hanging from the ceiling. The carpet all was like um, uh, bespoke, you know, with palm trees etched into it and everything and oceanic art on the walls. And behind the bar, um, instead of a bunch of bottles or a mirror, which is what you usually see behind a bar, there was a miniature diorama of an island scene with, a, with a, um, an island hut on stilts about yay big with like, uh, you know, model railroad palm trees and yeah. sand and a little fake resin beach. And then behind it was a dawn to dusk lighting diorama where the light would change from day to night <laughs> as you were sitting there drinking your Mai Tai or whatever. And I was just like being pulled into the dining room looking at this. And of course the dining room was just as amazing. There was an indoor lagoon and waterfall and et cetera, et cetera. So um, flash forward to 1980 when I'm old enough to legally drink and I, I seek these places out because I want to, I want to be in them and they're all sort of disappearing. But the ones I do get to, um, including the Tonga Room and the Fairmont, um, they actually 
delivered on the drinks as well as the decor. I mean, 1980 was the dark ages of the cocktail. Mm -hmm. um, it began in the 70s with the rise of the drug culture, which replaced the cocktail culture. Not that I have anything against drugs at all, but you know. <laughs> just to be clear. Uh, yeah, just, <laughs> no prejudices here. But um, but the counterculture, you know, rose up and, uh, and decided that cocktails were squares, which your parents did. And your parents probably voted for Nixon while you were again, trying, protesting the war. And you didn't want to be associated with any of that stuff. Um, so in the wake, it, combined with this was the fact that the industrial food complex was on the rise and um, nothing was being made fresh behind a bar anymore. Um, in the 80s and the 90s, the disconnect between the kitchen and the bar in a high-end restaurant in the States was insane. Mm -hmm. Like you would pay $100 for this beautiful three-course um, uh, you know, gourmet nouveau cuisine meal. And then if you ordered a margarita from the bar, it would come with a sweet and sour mix right. out, of a, out of a can and, uh, and just indifferently made or it would be blended everything was blended in the 90s if you asked ask for an old-fashioned it would be a, a slushy blender drink you know which today if you tell a kid who's into the cocktail renaissance about that they go what so drinks sucked they were terrible the only good ones were at polynesian themed bars the only good ones i had and the reason was that these were they were still making culinary craft cocktails the way they did in the 30s and 40s. That's just the way they always did it. They always mm -hmm. used fresh juices. They always made their own syrups. They always used bespoke tinctures and, and all that. And, um, and it was complex and it was um, delicious and the flavors were teasingly elusive. And these were the only good drinks to be had. So it was a win-win for me because not only did I love being in these beautiful movie sets, but um, mm -hmm. the drinks were actually good. And I, I wasn't just renting a seat and drinking a crappy drink. Um, and, um, flash forward again from the eighties into the nineties, all these places, the ones that were left started to disappear mm -hmm. because the fad was over. The fad had lasted 40 years. It lasted from the depression to disco, you know, from 1934 all the way into the late seventies, which was an unprecedented lifespan for a cocktail fad. Uh, there's nothing that really equals it except for if you want to go back to, um, you know, 17th century, 18th century Europe, where the punch bowl lasted for a couple hundred years. <laughs> right. Um, but but this was the first cocktail trend, single serving trend that lasted that long. So um, all of a sudden I realized, well, if I wanted to keep drinking these drinks, um, I would have to learn how to make them myself. And that's mm -hmm. when I discovered that these were all very closely guarded industrial secrets. Um, you know, I, I went to the library and I, I looked up old magazines and cookbooks and cocktail books looking for some sort of recipe. And they only they printed them, but they only printed bad ones. Um, it was almost like a faint. It was almost like, here, you, you make this, but this isn't the way it's really done. You know? uh, and I could not for the life of me figure out how to square the recipes I was seeing on the page with what I was drinking in these bars until I started talking to some of the old timers who still worked in these places. And I said, yeah, no, we never tell anybody what's in this stuff. These were that was your passport to employment for 40 years for a lot of these bartenders is like you had a little black book literally like mm -hmm. a little black telephone book and it was full of these secret recipes some of which were in code so if somebody else got a hold of them they couldn't figure out how to make them um i saw recipes and when i finally got a hold of some of these books it was like uh quarter round spices number two or or syrup right. number four you know and, and you couldn't the only way that you could do that is to know somebody who knew what that was so they were coded, they were closely guarded, they were never published. Um, and that sort of started me down this rabbit hole. You know, I'd had some journalistic, uh, journalistic experience and I 
just put, um, you know, it was just shoe leather, you know, it was just mm -hmm. going to places and talking to people, which for the only time in my life, it was the right place in the right time. It was Los Angeles in the nineties when a lot of these old Filipino bartenders and almost exclusively the Filipino bartending community who had worked at Don the Beach Commerce, who had worked at um, the Fairmont, who had worked at all these places, knew the recipes. When I encountered them, it would be completely random. I mean, this was before the internet. I would just walk into a, um, a Cuban restaurant or a sushi bar and there'd be some guy, old guy behind the bar and he'd hand you a cocktail menu and it would have all of Don the Beachcomber's greatest hits on it. And the idea of getting a cocktail menu in and of itself was absurd in the 90s. Like nobody did that, you know. Um, but then to see these drinks, which I recognized from my collection of paper ephemera, um, it's like, oh, well, here we go. So I have a living drink lab where I can try them and I can talk to these people. And it wasn't until my third book that they opened up. Um, I mean, I had to show them two books saying, look, here, I'm doing this out of respect. I'm not doing this to steal your recipes and open a bar, which 20 years later is what I did. You know? but, you know, like, at the time, I had no intention of doing that. You know, So, so anyway, um, uh, I hope that answers your question. But um, but I, I just I just fell down this rabbit hole. You know, yeah. and it all started when I was six and it was all because of the visuals. Um, you know, well, for uh, me, it was the visuals that drew me in. It yeah. was uh, seeing the mugs and seeing these incredible restaurants that uh, we don't have as many of them here in Canada. But when I would travel, I would always seek out uh, tiki bars wherever I was. The Tonga Room being one of them. And you walk into this place for the first time and it's completely overwhelming. It's bigger than you think it's going to be. It, uh, there's a lagoon in the middle that a band plays on. Uh, it has this right here. Oh, there it is. Yeah, there's. We're looking at a photo of it here. So th this is a, a place that everywhere you look, there is something to look at. Do you think that it has become sort of a benchmark of what tiki bars uh, will look like, simply because it's been around for so long? Now we've got kind of the high tiki pop Polynesian makeover mm -hmm. in the 60s and i think from then on it has sort of set the standard of what a tiki bar should be would you agree with that oh yeah it's overwhelming when you walk in there and um it wasn't the only one like that um steve crane who had the luau in beverly hills and then opened up the contiki chain and his actual one of the first ones was in montreal uh contiki and he had the contiki they, the tundra room kind of stole the idea of the tundra room from steve crane's contiki ports chain uh, and they were very high-end restaurants in, Cher in Sheraton hotels. I mean, he was, what, Crane was once quoted as saying it cost me uh, $500,000, $50,000 every time I want to design a door. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I yeah. mean, the, the doors, you know, you open the doors and there's like lava rock waterfalls <laughs> and just this insane over-the-top um, environment. And uh, the Tonga Room just sort of jumped on that bandwagon. Originally, the Tonga Room was equally impressive in the late 1940s when it opened. It, it had... Um, it looked like the deck of a cruise ship, or the mm -hmm. pool deck of a cruise ship. And there, there are photos online of it. I don't happen to have one here. Uh, it was pre, pre their tiki makeover. But when, when you said high tiki, you keyed into something. Mm -hmm. And when you said 1960s, because at that point, the post-war economy was booming. And all of these tiki places were, these were high-end um, white tablecloth fine dining restaurants back then. This, this, they weren't considered tacky. Yeah. Um, they weren't considered kitsch. They were this was considered like this was your big night out. This is when you put on your fur coat and, you know, yes. and your your tie and, and you went to these places. Um, if you look at the old postcards like the one I just showed you, everybody's in like their finest clothes and um, and they're all eating pretty expensive looking food. 
Um, so the competition was fierce with these places and they would all try to outdo each other. And um, the Contiki ports had four different rooms. Like uh, the idea was that you'd have different ports you could choose from. Uh, one was Macau, one was Singapore, one was uh, Tahiti uh, or Papeete. And, and um, uh, I forget what the other one was, but anyway, oh, of all things, Saigon, right. you know, <laughs> before the Vietnam, you know, before yeah, Vietnam. Yeah. Um, uh, that that was that right there is pretty telling, but anyway, um, so that before ports, but before you went to one of these dining rooms, you chose your port. You you began your adventure, quote unquote, in the bar, which was shaped like a 19th century sailing ship. So you're literally almost like the idea was you're being you're sailing into one of these ports, right. Right. and the Tonga room took that notion. Um, and here's here's another thing you can see the the whole uh, sailing ship kind of a thing there they've got the yep. mask and the schooner and everything they took that notion and made the entire space like that except for the and then they had of course the floating lagoon with the thunderstorms there but the tonga room is the last one left mm -hmm. um, aside from the maikai in fort lauderdale uh, the maikai in fort lauderdale was another one of these just mammoth you know megalithic tiki places built in 1956 they spent millions of dollars um in 1950s money um, building out a seven dining room place with a 40 acre tropical garden and all that. But aside from the Maikai on the East coast and the, um, Fairmont on the West, I mean, that's basically all that's left out of these, the, what was once a coast to coast fad. And, mm -hmm. and it peaked in the sixties when there was just this money floating around and, and everybody wanted to cash in on this. And in order to get your market share, you had to up your decor game. I mean, you really had to go to town and they would often hire actual Hollywood art directors. Right. Um, the designers, the production designer of, um, I think it was the Sound of Music or, or was no South Pacific, Lyle Wheeler. He was hired to do the interiors of a lot of these places. And so, we're, you know, the ones located on the West Coast, they would just hire, um, hire an art director from the movies to do it. So it's no accident these places look like movie sets. Well, exactly. And I think what they do is they offer not only uh, the experience of the drinks and the food, which, you know, probably there was a range like there is in any restaurant business but yeah. it, you know you, you let, let's assume that that was good but they offered an escape they exactly. offered uh, something that was uh different than any other restaurant that you go to and one of the things that i love about uh the the tonga room and i think most great tiki bars that i've been in is that the windows are blacked out you don't yes. see the outside world. So you're not sitting in your little South Sea paradise and a streetcar goes by <laughs> out the window, <laughs> right. for instance. Yeah, play, and, just destroying the illusion. Yeah, right, right. And I think that's so crucial to it. Once you're in one of these places, you are in the environment. And and with the with the mug in your hand and a poo-poo platter at your at your in front of you on the bar, you are transported. And it's yeah. difficult to do that in many restaurants, but great tiki bars like the Tonga Room managed to do that. Yeah, I mean, you nailed it, Richard. That's That was the ethos of these places, and it was very, very deliberate. There are no windows mm -hmm. in almost any of the grand Polynesian palaces. I mean, you, you're, you, once you walk into the space, you leave Los Angeles or yeah. Vancouver or, um, or San Francisco or, you know, Peoria, whatever it is, you leave that at the door. <laughs> right. and you are in the South Pacific. That was the whole idea. Uh, my friend Robert Hess, a cocktail historian, kind of nailed it when he said, "You're you're not going to a bar. You're going. You're taking a mini vacation." Yeah. Um, and that it was entirely the the, the case, with, especially with the Tonga. I mean, I can't imagine a more immersive environment than that when you have 
a, a literal rainstorm inside the room as a band is floating on a lagoon playing yeah. and it's just like you know with perfect lighting and uh and just amazing decor all over the place and, and a night and a, a sailing schooner is your bar you know let's talk about the drinks you are uh the the rum sage uh, the, you know the man with the keys to the tropical kingdom drinks are your specialty uh how do the uh, tiki cocktails at the Tonga Room compared to the great uh, tiki bar uh, offerings around the world? Um, I did not, I was not old enough, um, <clears throat> or we wouldn't be talking right now, uh, in order to, I was not old enough to go to the Tonga Room in its 60s heyday yeah. and try the drinks. Um, I have no idea how good they were. Um, I assume that they had to match the standard of the day, which was yep. pretty high. Uh, Trader Vic's, um, was right down the street on Cosmo Place, mm -hmm. um, and people would often, you know, hop from under. The, Trader Vic's was state of the art. I mean, you, if the, you, if your cocktails weren't as good as that, then you, no matter how good your decor was, people would just go to Vic's. So um, I have to imagine that they were pretty good. Now, um, the reason that I preface that, what I'm going to say by that is, when I got there in the uh, early '90s. And I walked in the door and it was absolute Mecca. And then I saw the cocktail menu and it was like pina coladas. And, um, you know, which they, is a pet just, peeve of yours. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was, it was, uh, it was boat drinks. So, you know, the Jimmy Buffett saw boat drinks. And that was the thing. It was the dark ages of the cocktail. And they, um, they had followed suit with everybody else and they were serving, you know, not very good drinks that did not reflect what they had been like in their heyday. Mm -hmm. Um, I haven't been back since the uh, my friend Danny Ronan, a cocktail consultant, a, a few years ago, the Fairmont was going to be sold to condos, it was a condo developer, and the Tonga Room was going to be like gone forever. Mm -hmm. And a bunch of people formed a grassroots um, uh, you know, petition signing thing, and they mounted this campaign to save the Tonga Room as a historical landmark. And Unlike Los Angeles, where people tried that with other things and it didn't work, you can't beat big real estate. They actually won. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Tonga, I think it's partially condos now, but the Fairmont exists. It's still there. And in order to up the game of the Tonga room and to make it more of a destination for locals and to keep it solvent, uh, Danny Ronan was hired. Uh, he's a you know craft cocktail expert in the Bay Area, or he was in the Bay Area at that time. He was hired to bring in all of the top craft cocktail bartenders in the San Francisco Bay area to con each contribute a recipe um, to the new bar menu. And right. I hear it's great. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I hear that now it's really good. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back when I, you know, when the, the plague has ended. You know, so. That's right. Well, I've been more recently than that and the drinks are good. I, I've uh, been, and they, they're, they've gone back there making the 1934 zombie and that sort of thing. Yeah. Like they are, they, they, they've dug back into the past and paid tribute uh, to the, the things that made Tiki cocktails great. And That's the fantastic. ones that, uh, that I've tried, I haven't tried the entire menu because I don't have that kind of stamina. I will eventually, but <laughs> <laughs> I'll get to them all eventually. You, it's it's worked for you though. It's your journalistic integrity. You know, you've got to get got to get drink the menu. Absolutely. But that's great to hear. That's really great to hear because now you yeah. can have that perfect experience again of being in that immersive, mm. wonderful environment and having a decent cocktail. That's doesn't get any better than that. At least not for me. <laughs> so, so, so the Tonga Room is just down the road, theoretically, or very close to Trader Vic's, where the Mai Tai uh, was claimed to have been created. So, yeah. my question to you is that. Uh, you are the you are the man. You are the last word on this. The idea that Trader Vic 
uh, created the, the the Mai Tai sort of almost accidentally one day versus it being a, a riff on a drink that Don the Beachcomber had originally created. Uh, yeah. Where do you fall on it? Or is it just that thing that was just kind of in the air and it was it was just they they both of them stumbled across something at well, kind of roughly sort of the same time? Yeah, um, I it wouldn't be fair to Don Beach to say that he stumbled on anything because he was um, really a genius mm-hmm. at what he did. I mean, he was a, he was an artist and he was very deliberate in the way he crafted his drinks um, and. You know, late in life, he claimed he invented the Mai Tai. And I think the reason he did that was because he, he did single-handedly invent what we now call the tiki bar and the tiki mm-hmm. drink. I mean, that was his thing. And then Trader Vic came along and was a better businessman and had a bigger chain of restaurants and, and became a celebrity chef with a bunch of cookbooks and drink books um, and, um, and kind of like left Don in the lurch and he was flashier as well i mean the idea that he had a wooden leg and he would yeah. tell a story and then jam a knife into his leg to punctuate that's the right. punchline that's, that's right yeah and he, he would tell people he lost it to a shark but he really he, he was seasick he'd never well, he hated the water yeah, yeah right. um but so don really was a genius john created the template the the menu template for mm-hmm. all of these places including the tonga including the tonga room and when trader vic started out he was doing don's drinks too and he was doing a zombie and all that stuff but um uh and i think the reason don claimed the, zomb- the mai tai was like he couldn't stand the fact that somebody else was getting um more credit for right. this whole phenomenon than, than the guy who actually originated it and you know i can certainly sympathize with that um having said that out of all of Don's imitators, and there were thousands of them from the 40s, from 30s to the 70s, mm-hmm. all of whom copied his menu. They, they got his drinks either by poaching his bartenders and paying them more money or by trying to reverse engineer them or just sheer guesswork and, and just naming them the same name. Right. He would sue them constantly. He was constantly suing uh, places for, uh, you know, selling drinks under the names he had invented and they had to change them. For example, he had a drink called the Missionary's Downfall and there was a place called uh, the Beachcomber in right here in New Orleans. Um, first he sued them because their name was the Beachcomber um, and he was down to the Beachcomber and they had to change their name to the Bali High. Then he sued them because they were serving the Missionary's Downfall, a drink that he invented. So they changed the name to the Padre's Pitfall. <laughs> and that, was, that was the kind of thing that you would have, uh, you know, you would have that there were a million variations on that one name from coast to coast because nobody wanted to get sued yeah anyway back to vic and the mai tai um the story he tells in his in his uh, autobiography which you were quoting about how he was just hanging around with his bartender one day and they decided they were going to make the greatest drink and then it happened yeah that doesn't quite sound like mm-hmm. the truth to me it sounds more like a bigfoot sighting kind of story you know but <laughs> but I, I do think there is um uh something to Vic that he doesn't necessarily get credit for, which was that he, um, I interviewed a Shirley Sarvis, who was a wine critic in the Bay Area in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and she ghost wrote most of Vic's books. Uh, Vic was sort of like the Emerald Lagasse of his day. I mean, that's, that's how big Tiki was back then too. Yeah, you know? yeah. And he, he, he was, um, you know, he had a book coming out every couple of years and she would be the one to do it. Um, and, but she told me that, you know, for all of his, um, uh, you know, marketing savvy and, and business savvy and all that, he still had the most perfect palette of anyone she'd ever encountered 
in the wine world or the restaurant world. He could just imagine what something tasted like without any mm. ingredients in front of him. And if he says that he invented the Mai Tai, I don't really doubt it. What I do think there is uh, uh, credence to is this middle ground where Don's story and Vic's story kind of, if there's a Venn diagram, right. you know, there's going to be a center to it. Uh, Don's story was that Vic um, stole a drink of his called the QB Cooler and then called it the Mai Tai at, his, at Vic's restaurant. Um, you know, Vic's story is that he invented the drink out of whole cloth, but um, I interviewed several people who worked for Don um, who both told me the same story about the QB Cooler. And I don't see, I mean, if you've, if you've ever, I mean, you're a journalist, you write stories, mm -hmm. um, you know, I make drinks, you create anything um, and it doesn't come out of Zeus's thigh. I mean, you've got an inspiration. Something yeah. has to be there for you to uh, build yep. on. And I think in Vic's case, Vic could have tried that drink, liked it at Don the Beach, went back to Oakland in his bar and had that in the back of his mind and um, maybe not even remembering the name of it or anything, but, um, subconsciously or consciously, he was he was trying to recreate that drink. Now, in the process, um, he created a drink that was very much his own. Because if you look at the recipe for Vic's Mai Tai and Don's recipe for QB Cooler, the only thing they have in common is lime juice and rum, um, and not even the same rum. So um, whatever Vic did in his journey of taking the QB and evolving it into the Mai Tai, you got to give him credit for it. Um, and I mean, the, I think it may sound silly to some people that we're spending 10 minutes talking about this, but that really was a cultural touchstone, that drink. I mean, it was huge. You know, it was like, it, um, it was huge. And, and here's the thing that I, uh, during its heyday, the thing that I didn't really understand was how big it was. Now, if you knew a tiki drink, you knew the Mai Tai, if, if you knew any of them, maybe the zombie and the Mai Tai are the two most, yeah. uh, but the Mai Tai actually caused a rum shortage in the world in the 19, in late 1960s. I mean, this is, an absurd level of popularity that I don't know that there's been a drink since that has captured people in the same way. I mean, I think the closest you could come is maybe the Cosmo yeah. during yeah. Sex in the City, but that was like a, that, that was, that was like a, a tempest in a teapot compared to the Mai Tai. I and mean, the Mai mm -hmm. Tai was huge for, that was the, the, the drink of the moment for almost 10 years, you know, yeah. just like, and longer. I mean, it's, it's in the canon now. I mean, it's in the cocktail canon. It's not just a tiki drink anymore. It's like you go to any craft cocktail bar, um, you know, where they have the 19th century tin root panel and they're yeah. very pre-prohibition. They're still going to make you a good Mai Tai and it's probably going to be on the menu. You right. know? So it's, it's crossed over just as the zombie has as well. But uh, Mai Tai more so. Well, I was one of those terrible bartenders in the 1980s and <laughs> spilling into the 90s. Uh, I did it for a long time, a bartender for a long time, uh, who made terrible versions of zombies and Mai Tais uh, and used powdered mixes and that kind sure. of thing. And it is a revelation when you finally have a real one, when you finally have one that's actually made with love and yeah. with all the, the correct ingredients, uh, it is night and day. And I, it was interesting to hear you compare having a $100 prefix kind of meal and then getting a, a, a watery, sugary margarita to go along with it. Uh, because when you have a perfectly prepared drink, it's like having a great meal. It's like yeah. you, it takes as much skill to do that as it does to roast a chicken, I think. <laughs> yeah. I, you're, you'll get no argument from me on that one. <laughs>
Now, I wanted to ask you a little bit about rum and sort of just the importance of rum in the whole world of tiki. I understand why rum uh, became the base of a lot of things in the 1930s. It was easy to get. There was a, a, a lot of it. Uh, and, and Don the Beachcomber adopted it. But there are so many different kinds of rums. I think that people think, well, Bacardi rum, I can get Bacardi rum and that will be it for all the drinks, all the tiki uh-huh. drinks I want to make at home. Uh, that's not really the case. Uh, there are rums that are almost extinct now. There are rums that cost thousands of dollars. Uh, tell me just what you can about the importance of rum to tiki. It all goes back to the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. Um, what we call tiki drinks today, by the way, that's a 21st century term. They were never called that right. in the uh, during the actual golden age of Polynesian places. They were called either tropical drinks or exotic drinks. Yeah. Um, tiki drinks was like cocktail bloggers in the 21st century needed a category. So they came up right. with that. Right. And, um, but anyway, um, tiki drinks, for want of a better word, mm-hmm. are basically Caribbean drinks, um, cubed and square, you know, squared and cubed by Don's uh, innovations. Um, the holy trinity of Caribbean mixology is rum, lime, and sugar. Planter's punch, Jamaican rum, lime, and sugar. Right. Daiquiri, Cuban rum, lime, and sugar. Yeah. Uh, tea punch, Martinique, agricole rum, lime, and sugar. You know, and so on and so on and so on. And Don took that foundation and he um, uh, just dimensionalized it. Like uh, instead of uh, sugar, well, why don't we mix two or three different sweet elements together? What about mixing a cinnamon syrup? Uh, does that mix with pomegranate? Uh, yeah, it kind of does. What if we take another syrup? An already compound syrup like falernum, which is ginger, clove, and all, put those together. Okay, that gives you um, a very interesting sweet component to the drink. Sour, why just lime juice? What if we add another citrus? What if does grapefruit and lime do something interesting together? You know, uh, rum, and this is where we get to what you were asking. Um, as you said, most people think of rum as just you know Bacardi. Okay, mm-hmm. it's just it's, that's that's what it is. Rum is the most damnably complicated spirit category there is. Um, and it's, you would never think of putting, for example, three different bourbons in an old fashioned, um, because although there are differences between brands in proof and in aging and, and you know, certain flavor differences, blind tasting of five different bourbons from different distilleries, they're gonna taste like bourbon. Same thing with London gin, same thing with Mexican tequila, but rum is not like that at all. The only thing you compare rum to is wine. Take, a, take that white Puerto Rican rum, that Bacardi rum, and, and the, on one side, and then take uh, a dark Jamaican rum, like this black Jamaican rum, like uh, uh, Myers or Appleton. It's like comparing Chablis and Pinot Noir. And they'll do, they look, they don't look the same, they don't taste the same, and they do totally different things in different drinks. Um, if you know you can't substitute one for the other in a drink that calls for one of them, um, and there's th- not only that; those are the two poles. There's all this thing, this whole flavor spectrum in between, and the reason for that is that over the 300 years that rum developed in the Caribbean islands, starting off in Barbados, as far as we know, in the mid uh, 1600s, different islands developed different um, distillation. Uh, aging and um, uh, blending techniques. And also you have to throw in terroir. There were some of these islands were volcanic. So the sugar mm-hmm. cane growing on them was going out of volcanic soil, made the rum taste different. 
from uh, stuff, say, that was grown, sugar grown in Guyana off of riverbank soil. Um, so over all these centuries, rum had all these very, very different, strong differences in flavor, which is why the categories white, gold, or dark rum are utterly useless. Um, because not only do you have that dark rum, right, or um, from Jamaica, that's going to be pot distilled, you know, like a copper copper mm -hmm. pot still drip, 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 as opposed to a black rum from uh, Guyana, which is going to be column distilled, like gallons at a time, in this big metal column. That's going to cause differences in taste. Um, the way that they're, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the Demerara rum, because of the sugar and because of the wooden column still they use, is going to have a very smoky, um, charred wood, kind of pirate juice taste, you know, mm -hmm. whereas... The, uh, the Jamaican rum, especially from Appleton, is going to be uh, sweeter, more molasses-y, uh, denser. Um, it's, it's going to have more uh, esters and congeners, which are what gives rum its flavor, also what makes it poisonous. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> we, won't, we won't get into that. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but okay, so that's differences in two dark rums from islands that are, I mean, not, well, Guyana's not an island, but regions that are not that far mm -hmm. apart in the Caribbean. And then you throw in... Um, distillation techniques like or, or or source what you're what you're distilling gold rum for example a gold rum from puerto rico and a, or, or barbados a gold rum from barbados a gold rum from martinique they're both gold rums if you have a recipe that calls for gold rum and you just pick one or the other it's a stupid recipe because <laughs> the the puerto rican i mean the, the barbados rum is going to be distilled from molasses you know a sugarcane mm -hmm. uh a waste product basically you know from sugarcane processing and it's going to taste totally different from the martinique rum which is distilled from fresh pressed sugarcane juice which is going to give that rum a very grassy herbal almost tequila like agave like flavor so they're both gold rum but they don't taste anything alike they may as well be different spirits you know so uh, so a recipe that says uh gold rum it's a stupid recipe mm -hmm. a recipe that says uh gold barbados rum or or um, or gold agricole rum, which is what Martin Reform calls itself, agricultural rum. Um, that's going to be the recipe you pay attention to. And, and, but so getting back to Don the Beachcomber, Don had been to the islands and he knew these rums. He knew the differences between these rums. And not only was he mixing multiple sweets and multiple sour elements, but he mixed, he created a base spirit out of different rums mm. to create that base that um, no one bottle could give you. For example, he would take that uh, that white Puerto Rican rum, dry, a little bit floral, um, and he would mix it with a heavy dark Jamaican rum, molassesy, um, high ester, very flavorful. The two rums would wouldn't fight each other; they'd work together. You know, the um, the the uh, Jamaican rum would inform the Puerto Rican rum, and the Puerto Rican rum would dry out the Jamaican just a little bit, uh, and then he would like throw a Demerara rum on that, you know, from Guyana, and mm -hmm. give it another top note of um, you know, smoke and charred wood and all these rums together. That was the foundational uh, rum blend for the zombie. And he did this with drink after drink after drink with different rums of different types. And that complexity on all three fronts of um, you know, taking rum, lime and sugar and then just you know, cubing each one of those things gave you what we call a teak drink. But why is rum crucial that because rum is so versatile and rum is so has such a vast flavor spectrum that you can play around like that which you can't really do with other base spirits 
Uh, one last question. Uh, do you agree with Anthony Bourdain when he says, if you have no love for the Tonga room, then you are sick and twisted and have too many cats? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. I have nothing to add to that. I think that just nails it. Completely. As you can probably tell from my laugh mixed in with Jeff Beach Bumberries, I agree. I think Anthony Bourdain was absolutely right about the Tonga Room. Well, that's it for the after party. Thanks for stopping by. We're closing up and it's time to go. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. My thanks to the Tonga Room for three quarters of a century of awesomeness and to Jeff Beachbum Berry for his insights into what makes the Tonga Room so memorable and the tiki drinks so tasty. Find out more about Jeff at beachbumberry.com. And when you're in New Orleans next, be sure to drop by his restaurant, Beachbum Berry's Latitude 29. It's located at 321 North Peter Street. You can get cocktails made right, right at the bar. My biggest thanks, of course, goes to you for listening. I hope you'll join us next time when we have another look at one of the world's great bars. I'm Richard Krauss. Stay safe, stay happy, stay healthy, and we'll talk again soon.